before I script your name too bad, is it Mitten Bueller? Yeah, it's Mitten Bueller. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Well, I didn't screw it up too bad then. Nice. No, not at all, actually. <laughs> First try. Guys, we got to stop. I totally forgot that the record was. <laughs> How embarrassing is that? Okay. I'll... On this episode, we are joined by Reed Mittenbuehler, author of the book Bourbon Empire, as we discuss the history and psyche behind bourbon, a distinctive product of the United States. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. And they're off for another Get 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. And we're back with another episode of the Bourbon Pursuit Podcast. My name is Kenny, and we've got Ryan here today as well. Ryan, you doing all right? Doing good, man. We're grinding. You know, we, was this our third episode this week we've recorded? We're killing it. We are killing it right now. Back at it, making up for all that lost time. But no, I'm, I'm doing great, man. I'm really pumped for today's show. We, you know, we love bourbon because it tastes good. And as, you know, with the episode about aroma, guys, because it smells good, but we also love it because of the history and the stories, you know, especially being from Kentucky, like, I really resonate with the brands and the stories behind them, whether they're true or false. But, uh, you know, I'm really excited to dive in today's show and, you know, and kind of talk about that history a little more. Me too. I was like sort of prepping myself for today's show. And if if anybody's like planning a, a trip to Louisville here within the holiday season, 
Um, if you want to, there is a pre-prohibition exhibit at the Fraser Museum. The Fraser Museum is a um, kind of a, a history museum around us, and there's there's a whole um, exhibit for pre-prohibition or sorry, prohibition. And you can go there, um, and it talks about some of the the ladies who are against prohibition. If you actually follow us on Twitter, I was Instagramming a few of those um, photos from there, uh, so you can kind of see sort of the um, the history of what it took for those. Uh, you could call them the, the dark times of, of of America's history without booze, but it was it was very interesting. And uh, you know, we, we always talk about, as you said, the taste, the smell, um, the nature of it. But there's a there's such a rich history in in what bourbon is. Um, there's a rich history with family lineages of of things trading between companies and all this sort of stuff. So yeah, uh, you're mm-hmm. you're totally right. Um, super excited to have on our guest today. So. Our yeah, with that, with the Fraser Museum, I did read yesterday in the Courier they partnered with the Kentucky Distiller Association, mm-hmm. and instead of changing the exhibits all the time, it's going to maintain that they're going to continue to do bourbon themed exhibits, and it's going to actually be the start of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail um, to where people coming to Louisville will go there and then go to from distilleries from there. So See, I, I thought that was that. pretty cool. That is that is awesome. I think uh, that's... yeah, it was in yesterday's Courier, so I, I thought that was pretty cool. Man, you still read the newspaper? <laughs> well. I go to Saints. It's a bar, my local watering hole, and they have it there, and that's the only time I read it. <laughs> there you go. I'm going to call you old just yet then. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> All right, so I'll go ahead and we'll introduce our guest. So, so I'll go ahead and introduce our guest. Today we have on the show Reed Mittenbuehler. Reed is the author of the book Bourbon Empire. So Reed, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. So, Reed, before we, we jump into the book um, and, and start talking about it, and I, I love the prologue. I was actually able to read it um, this week prepping for the show. Um, tell us your, your coming-of-age tale to bourbon. Like, How did you get into bourbon and whiskey, and what made you so fascinated with it that you just happened to become an author on the subject? <laughs> yeah, I, I graduated college in 2000, and so it was right about that point I became a whiskey geek. Um, I was actually in the military. I'd done ROTC in college. And after work on Fridays, we would go and we'd go to the, the, the officer's club and there, you know, play pool and that kind of stuff. And I hadn't been a big drinker in college, but everyone kind of had something in their hand, you know, kind of beer. a lot of guys had done time in Germany, you know, so they're big beer geeks and whiskey wasn't that popular. That was still sort of when it was seen as a little bit of an old man's drink and something about it was just kind of appealing. So that was really the the big start for it. And it was nothing fancy or expensive. And I, I realized I liked it. It was a really good deal. It was always sort of like this cheap thing at the bar that was good. So that's kind of how it began. And then like anything you geek out about, it, it kind of began from there. I started, you know, buying different bottles and it was a mix of all kinds of whiskey and scotch bourbon, whatever. But so you've been at it for a few years then. Yeah. You know, I started getting into it. You start reading more about it. You want to learn more about it. You start looking for books about it. And that's how it, you know, it kind of snowballed from there. Yeah. I guess, um, I guess kind of talk about that. What was the, um, I guess the culmination or the, the want to, to write a book about it when, um, there are already some authors out there already. Yeah. Well, when I started writing this book or thinking about writing this book, it was, you know, over 10 years ago. And it was because I was looking for more information on what was still kind of a niche thing. Um, you know, there were a few blogs and there were a few guides and the guys would have, you know, some history sections in the beginning, you know, kind of thin. Uh, Chuck Cowdery's book had just come out at one point. I remember reading that. And I was curious to keep learning 
more. And I realized how great this story was, especially when you look at it in terms of symbols. You know, everyone you know, has that nickname as America's native spirit, which is a you know, kind of a misquote of the 1964 resolution, a distinctive product of the United States. And I, I want, like, you, well, I want you to talk it? about that real quick, because I, I found that well, super interesting when I was reading about that. Just, just go ahead and kind of give everybody a quick rundown of, of why that's a misquote. Yeah, well, when Congress declared a distinctive product of the United States, it was to give it a kind of trade protection in overseas markets so that you couldn't have foreign producers making something called bourbon. And this is something that was lobbied for by the industry at the time to sort of pr- protect themselves a little bit and, you know, reduce their competition. Uh, the same way that you have these controls for champagne or tequila or what have you. And, you know, this bill was lobbied for. And today it's been sort of reimagined as a kind of, you know, a Valentine's Day given to the, in Valentine's Day card, you know, given to the industry by, by Congress and for American heritage and that kind of thing. The reality was really, it was much more of a business measure. Um, and I liked watching how if you repeat the myth enough times, the myth becomes reality, right? You know, everyone's like, oh, it's America's native spirit. And the resolution never really used that language. It wasn't as heartwarming as that language would suggest. And, you know, that in itself is a very American kind of story, how we reimagine the past. And I was looking at the history of, of this product, and it really is a history of American capitalism in a lot of ways. When you break it down as a symbol, you've got the Whiskey Rebellion of the 1790s, which is this battle between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson. And that might be kind of a simplification, but you know, it's a battle between their dueling philosophies to define the soul of American business. And then as you go through the history of the United States, you kind of see whiskey having an influence on politics and economics. And then vice versa, you see how as the nation is evolving and becoming more industrial, uh, the product itself is changing. So it's a push and a pull. And I was like, what if we break it down and we look at uh, you know, the history of this product uh, as a miniature version of the history as the country that it comes from, you know, in all these different aspects, economics, you know, politics, lobbying. Um, you know, what we hold in our hand today, that product is the result of all those things. And so I tried to break the history down that way. I think it's a really great story. And that's a book I really wanted to read. And I realized it didn't totally exist. So I just kind of started tinkering, putting it together, you know, mapping it out, that sort of thing. And, And that's how the book came about. Yeah, and I think I've always we, we've always know that it's it's really hard to take a lot of history and make it into a story. So uh, let's mm-hmm. let's kind of talk about the story, right? I want to talk about the beginning because there's something uh, the first title or the first chapter of the book is called the Big Bang. So kind of mm-hmm. talk about the beginning where you, where you mentioned the Big Bang of bourbon. Yeah, so in the history of a bourbon, history of American whiskey. You've had a number of producers sort of for marketing purposes try to lay it down to a single individual, you know, the hero of our story, be it Elijah Craig or an Evan Williams type character or whatever. Um, there really is no, you know, creator of bourbon or anything like that. So how did this product evolve? And in a lot of ways, it was a lot of people doing a lot of different things. Best practices get transferred by word of mouth. And that's how it kind of was. So there really isn't a patch of ground that you can stick a flag in and say, like, this is where it all began or this, you know, whatever. But there was a story that had come across in a number of old books about, you know, George Thorpe, who had come over and, you know, in the 1600s, and he lived at a place just up the river from uh, Jamestown. And, you know, this guy didn't create bourbon by any means. I I didn't want to give that impression in the book. Um, But there was 
you know, his story, which is a story of entrepreneurship and of empire and of capitalism, really. He was sent over here trying to find crops that could be grown, that would be profitable. Um, you know, he's, he's part of the British Empire. Um, and, you know, he's looking for a substitute for his beloved British, you know, beer made out of malted barley. His eye falls to corn. And I was like, you know, this this unique you know, new world grain would ultimately become the base of what is the king of American spirits of American whiskey, which is bourbon. Um, all due respect to rye. And, um, you know, I thought that was a great, a great story looking at the grain and he did have a still. We don't know for sure if he actually distilled his corn beer into spirits. Um, but there are indications that he did. He probably did, but we don't know for sure. And, yeah, I thought that was an interesting story just to look at it from a business perspective. He was experimenting with wine. He was doing all kinds of experiments to find an alternative to the kind of things that, you know, the English were drinking in this new world. So he's adapting. It's a very American story. He's trying to start and, the American party. Right, right. And I, and I, and I wanted to use him, um, you know, and, you know, he was in Virginia. And I wanted to use him as an example of history being written by the winners because his name is forgotten largely. Um, and also because we don't know for sure if he really, you know, actually distilled this, he probably did, but he did have his eye on this grain and it's a very murky origin story. And I like the fact that it was murky. I like the fact that it wasn't definite and that we couldn't say for sure that this is, this this is that, um, which gets us into, a common theme throughout the rest of American history, which is myth, you know, the myth and marketing. I think the story quite often is more important than the actual liquid. I mean, that's what we're drinking. We're drinking something that we want to reflect some sort of truth about ourselves. You know, I drink this brand. This is what it says about me. A lot of that is myth. It's storytelling. It's marketing. And there were elements of that in Thorpe's story. So that's why I open, open the book with that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You and know. Even in the book, you, you, you do talk about those myths because there are I don't want to dive into them, but there are certain brands that you see on the shelves that they don't actually represent what they what they say they represent, right? And and you do a good right. job of pointing some of those out at the very beginning. Yeah, and not to condemn them. I think that's also part of the the beauty of the history of this. It's like there is so much myth. It's just storytelling. It's not necessarily real, but there's hucksterism is very much a part of that. And these brands today that have created these, you know, outrageous, you know, kind of fantastic stories um, – are also being very, very, you know, they're, they're honoring that tradition almost. They're in a way almost more authentic by, you know, creating something because that's part of the story. You know, ever since the beginnings of modern marketing for bourbon, you know, after the Civil War, you started to see producers do this, just kind of create these, these stories that have a very, that appeal to us, mm-hmm. um, you know. So I, know, I feel good about Elijah. When I drink Elijah Craig, I'm like, it came from a priest who accidentally burned his farm and sent burnt <laughs> barrels down the river. And that's how we came bourbon. <laughs> it, it did. But it's like the Johnny Appleseed aspect of all of this. It's like we, we, you know, these myths, even though they might not be strictly, you know, literally true, do a lot of times reveal a larger truth about what we want to believe about ourselves and that kind of thing. So looking at the history of, you know, this, this spirit, I also, wanted to look at history itself and how we interpret it. Well, cool. So let's, let's jump a, ahead a little bit in history and let's get to, I don't want to say modern times, but more, more ish modern times. Um, you know, there was a, a, a pretty culmination year of, of 1964 that you kind of talked about in your prologue. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk about kind of what was happening during that time period? 
Right. So in 1964, the story really starts more than a decade before 1964. Please indulge. Teach me. me. And the Korean War is, you know, about to start. And producers, specifically, you know, Louis Rosensteel, who is one of the big four, four companies controlled about 75% of the American whiskey industry. And they were looking at the shortages they had suffered during World War II when rations had been put in place. And a lot of them had converted over to produce industrial alcohol for the war. And there were great shortages uh, during that time. And Rosen still sees the Korean War, and he thinks it's going to blow up, possibly come another world war. So, you know, he goes and he starts producing full blast so he can get a lot of surplus, you know, anticipating this coming drought. Well, the Korean War ends. And it didn't blow up into the, you know, world war that he, he thought it might become. And so he's left with this huge surplus of whiskey, way more than what Americans are drinking. And Americans are drinking a lot. It was roughly eight times uh, national demand. And taxes were due on this product um, after eight years. You know, you could age, that was the, the bonding period. Um, you could that's when your taxes became due. Well, as this tax crunch is coming coming forth, Rosenstiel is like, well, I'm going to lose my shirt when taxes come due on this product that I can't really sell. And he knows he's going to have to start selling it for a loss. All the other producers are going to have to cut their prices and possibly start selling uh, to compete with him. And it could ruin the industry. And the industry had been subject to a lot of these kind of boom and bust cycles in the 18, late 1800s, which is why the industry back then had tried to form a cartel. There was a distiller, Joseph Greenhut, who headed up the Whiskey Trust. It was very similar in the way it operated to Standard Oil at the time. This is before the Sherman Antitrust Act. And so he goes to his counterparts in the main lobbying group, the DSI, and he says, you know, we've got to we've got to push the bonnet. We've got to lobby to get the tax period pushed back. And they actually fight them on it. Although it was, you know, arguably good for the product and it's good for the industry. They knew that it was, you know, kind of turning his mistake into an advantage for him. He was ahead of them with aging these bourbons a little longer. They knew he was going to start because his company, Shenley, had, had mentioned this in, in the trade papers. They knew he was going to start going for the luxury market, you know, competing with Scotch, selling these these older products as older products. And they wanted um, to have the law kind of caveated, saying you know, he couldn't label his products as older in certain ways until they had time to catch up, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, they, 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 they fought him on it. So he went off and formed a kind of rebel lobbying group called the Bourbon Institute. Um, and they lobbied successfully for the Fran Act, which moved the bonding period from eight years to 20 years. So producers could go, you know, that long without having to pay taxes immediately on the product, which is, you know, a win overall. Well, he still has this huge surplus. He's got this product. He's got to sell it. Um, You know, his company has to grow. And he starts looking at these overseas markets. Um, That was a great place to expand. They wanted to start marketing bourbon overseas. There was a huge market for it. People were buying scotch in some places overseas, but, you know, scotch ruled the roost. They were going to go compete. And the 1964 resolution was so that, as we explained a little bit earlier, foreign producers couldn't produce something called bourbon and compete with them. It was to protect their product in these foreign markets. And so he lobbies 
Congress, the Bourbon Institute lobbies Congress, and gets this thing passed calling bourbon a distinctive product of the United States. And that's sort of where this resolution comes. And today it's been reimagined as, you know, a much more, you know, it's been kind of imagined as something different, something kind of like it was honoring this thing of American heritage. And I was like, but really it was honoring, it was a business move. You know, it was a very pretty cutthroat business move. Mm -hmm. And when you say, you know, America's native spirit, what's that mean? And I was like, well, it's a business and it's a business that represents a lot of American capitalism throughout history. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. What was the result of the Bourbon Institute in the overseas market? I mean, was that was it a successful endeavor, or did it end up just having you know no fruits of the labor were really found? Well, you could argue that a lot of those fruits are seen today. Um, you've got American whiskey expanding into overseas market. It's become particularly popular, especially in the UK, um, in a lot of other parts of Europe. Obviously, Japan. Everyone knows about about that. Australia you're starting to see its reputation improve. When these companies were trying to expand in the 60s overseas, they struggled a little bit because people didn't really know what bourbon was. They didn't know how it was different than scotch. You know, They didn't know that, honestly, American whiskeys, the way they're, they're aged, can go for a little bit less time than scotch. And that's kind of where they'll find their, their sweet spot. Um, people saw it as kind of blue collar. They saw it as like a very humble drink. You know, They saw scotch as you know, the drink of... You know, that had... That had that had accompanied the British, you know, during their time of empire. So it was seen as like a gentleman's drink. It was seen as, you know, the drink of the ruling class kind of, whereas bourbon quite honestly, and even in the U S was seen as, you know, the drink of these guys, you know, one strapped overalls out in the mountain hollers and it didn't always have the best reputation. And so, you know, in the United States, you'd see it advertised a lot more often as kind of, you know, 
blue collar, working class, that kind of thing. But when companies were going overseas trying to advertise in the 60s, they would try to change that image because a lot of this is in our heads. So Jim Beam very specifically, and I look at this in the book, Jim Beam, which is not a huge company at the time, it's kind of mid-sized in the 60s, um, they had a series of advertisements for overseas markets that had, you know, classic Jim Beam white label, but hit these guys with, you know, top hats on, they're wearing tuxedos, and it was billed, you know, for this new audience as, as a luxury thing so that it could compete with scotch, which was seen as kind of a more, as a, as a fancier kind of drink. Uh, so that was an interesting story that, that get back to another theme I like to explore in the book of, you know, it's all in our minds, like all these rules of connoisseurship, you know, what's good, what's bad, you know, you know, it, it's older versus if it's younger, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, a lot of it, when you're doing blind tastings, I think a lot of those rules get thrown out the window a little bit. You know, you realize that, you know, it is kind of in our heads. It's, it's kind of what's marketed to us. Yeah. It's, it's always one of those things. Uh, I mean, even when you bring a few friends over and you're, you have a few bottles out and then one of them says Van Winkle on, and then they, they immediately just drink it. And they're like, Oh, it's so smooth. But then you put like Elijah Craig 12 next to it. They're like, well, they're both 12 years. Like, but the, yeah, the, it's, it's this, it's this whole concept of, uh, mind over matter and, and of yeah. what you're actually drinking versus, uh, what do you think you're drinking? Well, my father had a, uh, a whole bunch of happy, um, he'd gotten kind of before Pappy became the big, you know, hyped thing that it has become. Mm-hmm. And this is several years ago. And I told him, you know, whenever someone brings up Pappy because they've heard about it, do me a favor, go ahead and just give them some, you know, pour them a mini bottle or whatever and, and, and give it to them and just record their responses for me. And he did. And, you know, and some of them he would do blind, you know, and that sort of stuff. So this was, this was, this was fun to watch. He was like, you know, about half of them, when I let them know it's Pappy, all of a sudden the eyes roll back in their head. And it's like, they've just, they've just enjoyed the nectar of the gods. And the other half of people, just kind of look at it and are like, really, this is what the big fuss is about. <laughs> and I think that goes a lot to you. If you do it blind, it's like a lot of these, you know, with craft whiskey. And I, I love seeing where craft whiskey is going. But, you know, just to be fair, you know, some of the worst stuff I've had is craft whiskey, but they have the image thing, you know, some of these, yeah. they've got the image yeah, thing down. Like they're small, they're independent, but, you know, it's overpriced and maybe underaged. And so they've got this asset in that an, an image that, today has a lot of value out in the market, you know, having a, a small facility and, you know, these buzzwords like artisanal and craft, which don't mean anything, they're, they're meaningless, but, you know, that sells and you're seeing, I think it would be mystifying to, you know, the whiskey men of days gone by to see some of these products on the shelves today and see what they're selling for. And they'd be like, wait a minute, what's, what's going on here? Like, I think it would really confuse them. Right. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite stories from the book is how, you know, there was a period in American history where industry was sort of seen as a good thing in, in food. Like, um, there's a great history of the frozen food movement in Clarence Birdseye. And, you know, he's freezing food and, and he was a foodie, but not in a way we today would think of, you know, someone like him, you know, being a foodie. And you see in whiskey advertising up until, you know, World War II, they would advertise their industrial nature in a lot of ways. Uh, Hiram Walker actually had a series of advertisements where they hired Thomas Hart Benton, you know, the painter to do them. And it looks almost like industry on parade or like, you know, Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times in a way. It's like these guys working at factories and they were promoting you know, our whiskey is consistent, you know, those kinds of things, which if you look at before when what artisanal really meant in America in the late 1800s, when it meant like a lot of spoilage, it meant a lot of inconsistency. It didn't necessarily mean a good product. Um, they were reacting to that. You know, we always react to the conditions that we inherit. 
And they were reacting to that. So they were using you know, these things that today don't really sell very well, the idea of industry to sell their product. And today we're sort of reacting to the reverse of that. We're reacting to a lot of big industries you know, and a product becoming a little more homogenous. Yes, it might be consistent. And yes, the overall quality you know, might be very high. But you know, it is just a few corporations owning this and sort of rubbing out a lot of the weird quirks that were in whiskey before, some of which were, you know, quite enjoyable and kind of fun. And so we're moving back to a period of sort of celebrating small and consistent, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some great benefits to that. I also think there are some drawbacks to that, you know, because with whiskey, it is an industrial product in a lot of ways. So economies of scale it does matter. Right. Um, so I thought that was fascinating. And to look at whiskey that way, uh, I think is a lot more valuable, you know, if, when we're talking of guides and these guides that are written about, you know, whiskey, you know, appreciating it in that way too. And understanding what it is from a technical perspective turns a lot of rules on its head. One of my favorite business books is by Seth Godin. It's called all marketers are liars and they scratch it out and put storytellers. And it goes <laughs> through the examples of like Volkswagen and Porsche, you know, they're, they're the same exact thing, but you know, people tell themselves that Porsche is, you know, so much better and amazing because it's, it's a, you know, a, a luxury item. And we do that with everything. It's funny. It just goes on, you know, in the whiskey industry as well. Oh, yeah, you know, I, I, absolutely. And and in the book, I kind of like to, I'm almost in awe of that in a way. I kind of like to celebrate that. One of my, my favorite stories is wild turkey. If you look at how wild turkey is made, if you go to their facilities, it's not particularly romantic. I mean, they, it does look pretty industrial there. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of wild turkey products. You know, they have a relatively low barrel entry proof. You know, they make their whiskey quite well. But you go there and there's computers everywhere. And you know, no one wants to talk about how, you know, computers, you know, these things used as tools, you know, if they're going to use them, you know, to evaluate their cuts or whatever. People don't necessarily like to talk about how this is really an advantage. You know, you wouldn't criticize a heart surgeon for using a computer to do his job better. And I look at this product, but the reputation Wild Turkey had 30, 40, 50 years ago, it really was kind of like, a little, a little down home, a little blue collar, you know, when I mention how good of a product I think wild turkey often, you know, can be, people are like, well, wait a minute, isn't that just kind of like, that's like kind of Bubba's drink, right? And you're like, if you look at it technically, <laughs> you shoot that at the bar. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, you know, and you see that changing today, especially with geeks. I mean, geeks all know that, you know, know what their line of products and, and know how it is. And I thought that's really interesting. It's all in our, it's all in our minds. You know, there are products that have, you know, that kind of shine a little brighter on the store shelves right now. And I don't think they're necessarily made as, as good as wild turkey products, but yeah, you know, so I, I was like, that's something I, 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 I loved exploring in the book is the perceptions about this stuff. You know, mm-hmm. and yeah. the reason, and, yeah, and the reason it, its reputation suffered was when the industry cratered in the '60s and '70s. It was seen as an old man's drink and that kind of. And but these companies were making it very well. Um, you know, it wasn't because the product itself wasn't living up to standards or wasn't up to snuff. It was just because people turned away from it. You know, they saw it as an old man. They saw it as part of the past. They saw it as grandpa's drink. And they were turning to vodka or white wine. They were turning to these other drinks that in a way reflected, you know, how, how the times were changing. And bourbon, American whiskey, just kind of got left behind, although the product itself was great. And that is part of the reason the prices were so cheap in the 80s and 90s. And a lot of people like me got into it because I was like, this is an excellent, this is a great product and nobody wants it. Not because it's not good, but just because 
you know, it's all, it's like fashion. I, I like to look at brands the same way I look at fashion. Hemlines go up, hemlines go down. Lapels widen and lapels get, you know, slimmer. It doesn't have to do with the actual thing itself. It just has to do with what we're thinking at the time about that thing. So I think that's always important to remember. Yeah. It's the, it's the psyche that, that all, that all brings it together. Right. So right. I, I want to kind of just take a right turn and, and kind of go back to uh, some of the meat of the book and the history. So, uh, there's there's something that, that you said, and I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing a little bit, and you said that Rosensteel presided over vicious consolidation rounds that made distillers and brands extinct, but it's mm-hmm. also a part of the reason why many bourbons today taste as good as they do. So talk mm-hmm. about like what, what, what did he do that actually makes it taste better? Because the one thing that, that comes immediately to my mind, and when I always think of like the Bottled and Bond Act, I think of, of E.H. Taylor. And, mm-hmm. and he, yeah. he was the man that spearheaded that. And, and that's yeah. what stopped people putting, um, you know, arsenic and tobacco spit and all these other kind of things in the whiskey to give it color. Um, so kind of talk about what, what Rosenstiel did to, to help do all this. Right. Yeah. Rosenstiel obviously coming far after Taylor. And Taylor, I, I spent a lot of time on, on him in the book too. And with the labeling regulations that came after the bottling and bond act. Um, so when you look at, you know, what I described as vicious consolidation rounds, you know, you had way more distilleries before prohibition and then prohibition really winnows down that number. And then, you know, the, the arc of this industry's history is, you know, one of, and I used to use the Hamilton versus Jefferson thing, you know, Hamilton and being a, a champion of consolidation, it kind of Hamiltonianizes over its history. And to get to the point, you know, around 2000, you've got, you know, just a, handful of companies operating about a dozen, you know, different facilities making 99% of all American whiskey. And Rosensteel in the middle of the 20th century is a big part of that. I like to think of these brands, these distilleries as a school of fish. And then you've got slightly larger fish eating them. And then you've got killer whales eating them. And so you get to the point where it's just a few companies controlling everything. And, you know, all these brands that we see on the shelves today, a lot of the older ones say like old overholt or whatever, were independent and they were made at in you know, these distilleries that you know did did things a little bit differently than the distillery that was just down the street. They might have ground their grains, you know, they might have been a little more coarse or a little more fine, which affects the flavor. They might have seasoned their barrel with a little, you know, a lot of these little differences, which led to nuance. You know, the kind of the same way that radio stations of past decades, and you know, you'd have these little quirks and things from independent DJs all picking their own tunes instead of having, say, Clear Channel, you know, pick the 10 songs that everyone in America is going to listen to. Mm -hmm. And as the industry consolidates, a lot of those little differences, you know, got rubbed out of the system. You can taste that when you taste your Dusties today. Like, you know, you get a a much wider range of of flavors in whiskey. And so American whiskey, it lost a lot, you know, because of that. It also lost, I think, a lot of dead wood. I've had a lot of Dusties that are horrible, you know. So... You know, and that's always, I think, useful and important to remember. Yeah. And Rosensteel, you know, was, was a part of that. And it's not a very romantic side of, of, of the story. Um, and in a lot of ways, it was a bad thing. You know, there were a lot of really great producers that went out of business because the industry was consolidating. Guys like him are buying up these brands and they're batching their processes. They're all bringing it over, you know, under consolidated, consolidated roofs. Um, but in a lot of ways, too, there is a benefit from that. You know, when you look at, say, 10,000 distilleries in America, you know, 200 years ago, you know, every farmer has a still. They're not necessarily making a great product because they don't have economies of scale. You know, they're not focusing all their attention on their craft. You know, this is just a sideline to farming, basically. You know, 
I wouldn't really want that a whole bunch of tiny producers making a product that, you know, they can't necessarily afford to age long enough, you know, that kind of thing. But I also don't want just, you know, three corporations making all of it, you know, so it's all kind of homogenous. I think there's a, a happy middle ground. Uh, you know, you look at the craft distilling boom today and it's way over 500 distilleries. Mm-hmm. That's still kind of a lot, you know, a lot of them and they're, they're struggling and it's hard to raise all that kind of capital. Um, you know, but maybe a couple hundred, you know, there you're getting a lot of variety, but these companies are also just big enough where they can afford the economies of scale to really make the product right. Yeah, I and mean, so, it, that kind of reminds me of even what's going on today with InBev basically buying like every brewery that's out there. Yeah, yeah. And so with Rosensteel, you know, these vicious consolidation rounds, you know, there were a lot of negatives that came off that, you know, this kind of regional feel that whiskey once had. Um you know, where you'd have a distill, you know, distilleries all over the country instead of only in Tennessee and Kentucky, for the most part. Um, you know, that was lost. And that, you know, it's kind of sad, you know, to think about. But then you also have this man who is lobbying for the Ferrand Act, you know, which pushed the uh, the bonding period from eight years to 20 years, which gave distillers a little more room to experiment. You know, some of these these oak bombs, you know, these much older whiskeys, you know, things like that. He also pushed for that resolution. 1964 resolution, which protected American whiskey and foreign markets to help think, you know, raise its, raise its star a little bit. And so those are ultimately good things, but the story is ultimately gray and it's not always black or white. So, you know, that's what I, I mean when I talk about that. And I, that's why I like the story. He's not a great image, you know, for marketing. You know, he had links to organized crime, um, you know, as I said, indicted, but never convicted. Um, you know, he, apparently bugged his office and would use it for blackmail purposes. So it's like, he's not a very romantic figure. And he was kind of a Titan. He lived in, his office was in the empire state building. Um, is that you why know, you, you wouldn't see like a brand or a whiskey named after him today or something like that? Oh yeah. Yeah, sure. And, you know, and I, you know, I talked to people while doing the research and a lot of people prefer to look at him as like a corporate raider, you know, like, Oh, he just bought up brand. He wasn't a distiller. He did actually work in a distillery before prohibition. His family, he was from Cincinnati. His family um, had a, a distillery in Kentucky, and he worked there as a very young man. Um, but they're like, well, he's not really a distiller. He's not a craftsman. He's just a businessman. You know, I mean, he in the 60s, he donated $100 million to, to charity. I mean, that's how rich this guy was. It was. It was a much bigger industry then relative to the U.S. economy than it is today, you know. And I thought that was just a, a fascinating story. That's, like a, that's a real story in American history, mm-hmm. you know, warts and all. So. Well, good deal. So we're, we're coming up to the end of this, and I kind of want to get back to uh, the psyche and the marketing and, and talk about one last thing that you, you, you mentioned, the prologue. And you mm-hmm. talk about bourbon being a, a, quote, comfort food. So talk, right. about, talk about what you mean by that. Yeah, so I've been asked in a number of interviews, and I've seen a lot of you know, other writers question, like, well, so what's the reason for the comeback, you know? American whiskey is way more popular now than it's been in a long time. And, you know, people attribute that to, you know, Mad Men and all that kind of stuff. And I look at them like, well, you know, when you look at this, this spirit, it has a, a rich heritage. It's got a really fascinating, great history. And a lot of the symbols that you see on the labels, a lot of the iconography goes back to the frontier. And that's a magical 
almost kind of like mythical time. You know, we see that as, you know, it, it, I think the frontier would have been a horrible place to live personally. Um, you know, it was, <laughs> life expectancy was shorter. A lot of dysentery. Was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was hard, but it is mythical. It's like, you know, going west. The Oregon Trail. A grueling pace. <laughs> yeah. Right, but is that appeal of it too, where it's like you're independent, you're going off to the frontier, you're create, you're forging something new, you're building a new life for yourself. That's what it represents. And we see that as, you know, that's kind of a bedrock for Americans in a lot of ways, you know, the West. And urban, which was kind of created by Western migration, you know. American whiskey, there's a lot of rye used before. And as we move west into territories where corn is more predominant, you see it. You see that coming into the mash bills more and that kind of and so bourbon like represents that in a lot of ways, um, symbolically and you know, very quite literally. And it's represented in, in in the labels. And so I think today, you know, times are confusing. And everyone likes to say that their time is confusing, but today, you know, it is. Like economically, we've got a lot of disruption. In the economy, you've got a lot of very brand new, shiny industries kind of rent, you know, tearing down the old ones and they're leaving income inequality in their place and that sort of thing. And politics, you've got a system that is arguably more meritocratic than you know, it has been in a long time, um, but you still have a lot of arguing going on in, in Washington. So it's confusing that way. I think socially, we're more connected than we ever have been through social media, but we're also more disconnected than we ever have been. You, know, you go into a bar today and you see crowds of people staring at their phones. You know, the, in the book I described, the numb glow of tiny screens has replaced you know, an actual conversation we're having with a human in front of us. And so I think that part of bourbon's resurgence is linked to, you know, it is connected in a lot of ways to that past. And we see that past is simpler. And, you know, in some ways, I think we want to return to it. And so bourbon is kind of comfort food. A lot of times, comfort food for people is something that you might have enjoyed as a kid, you know, growing up, macaroni, you know, what your mom cooked, you know, that kind of thing. And we see this drink as a drink of the past, of our grandfathers and that, that kind of thing. And so we're returning to it for those sorts of nostalgic reasons. And there's a, a comfort in that. I also think that it's a little more simple than that. And what's old is new again, right? So the industry created in the 60s and 70s, because it was seen as, as grandpa, as our father's drinks or, or whatever. But, you know, we returned to it because we had, you know, a lot of vodka before, you know, people had adopted that because it was new and it was kind of shiny and it was a little risque and then it kind of became boring. You know, people are always looking to react a little bit. They're always looking to be a little different. And, you know, once bourbon was in you know, American whiskey, almost had left, you know, was it, once the industry had fallen so much, the return to it was kind of a way to, to be different. That's, that's what brought me to it a little bit in the first place. It was different. I mean, I remember I would drink whiskey in bars with my friends or 15 years ago and you, they kind of look at you like, why, why are you drinking that? And I kind of like that. There was an appeal to that. You know, I felt mm -hmm. like I was kind of striking out and doing something a little different. Um, and I think the resurgence of American whiskey, you can link a little bit to that. It was, you know, it was kind of a cool thing. It was a trendy thing. It became a trendy thing, but you know, a lot of people were returning to it because it was cool again, you know, because it had been forgotten. So I, I that's, that's what I mean when I call it a comfort food. Part of it is just the fashion, the fashion aspect of it. You know, what's old is new again. Headlines go up, headlines go down. Whiskey was popular, then it's unpopular. Now it's popular again. In a deeper sense, that connection to the past, 
that whiskey has because it's had this influence on history and we didn't really get into it, but the whiskey rebellion and the whiskey trust and, you know, whiskey in the 1800s and we connect with that. That's why it's a comfort food. Well, awesome. I mean, this was a, this was a great talk and, you know, really into not only the history, but the psychology of, of how we view a lot of these things. So uh, Reed, I just want to say thank you again for coming on the show. This was uh, very fantastic. Hey, thanks for having me. It was a blast. Yeah. This is always an interesting topic. Talk about comfort food. And my friends now, like, I've been drinking bourbon forever because I'm from Bardstown. And right, so yeah, right. It's, well, it, yeah, you talk about a comfort food from the past. You know, I was probably served it when I was like a baby, you know, to quit teething or something, you know. But no, when we get around and friends and you drink the different brands and you talk about, like, this one's different, this one, that, you know, it does create that conversation around that, you know, that bottle or whatever, rather than just all of us on Twitter seeing what's, you know, the next juicy story or whatever. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the fun stuff. I, you know, I don't spend a whole lot of time on Twitter. I'm on it, but like, I love the occasional, uh, meeting group I'll have with like other whiskey geeks and everyone will maybe like bring a bottle of something and you're just kind of talking you spend hours, you know, in a room, maybe there's a fireplace in the room, who knows, right? Like that's the fun stuff is debating this kind of stuff, you know, and debating the geeky stuff too. And, you know, small barrels versus large and all that kind of stuff, the, the geek stuff. Like that's exactly, I feel like debating it is part of the fun. As long as you're, you know, not to draw blood, you know, I never want to take it too seriously where some people you get the impression that they're, they're very, they almost get angry, you know, when they see prices go up or they see, and that's kind of sad in a way. Like I came to this cause it was like a fun thing. It was kind of a, there's a lot of joy from it. So it's important to always keep that perspective too. You know, you get the inevitable squabbles of, of groups that are really into something, be it comic books or Star Trek or whiskey. Um, but I always try, it's important to keep that perspective. That it's always supposed to be, be fun, you know, never supposed to, to draw, right. draw blood. So if people want to get in touch with you and they want to buy your book, Bourbon Empire, how do they yeah. do it? Um, it's, at, it's at most bookstores um, and it's on Amazon. Um, you know, I've got a website. It's just by name.com. If they want to get in touch with me, um, my email's on there. Um, I just, I was yeah. throwing you a softball. I figured it was on Amazon and all the other <laughs> retail outlets that you could possibly think. So yeah, well, awesome. So uh, again, thank you for being on the show. If you That's like right. what you hear, make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also follow us at, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at bourbon pursuit. And, uh, yeah, if you have any suggestions for new shows, new guests, uh, we're always open to hear. So, Reed, thank you again for being on the show, and we'll see you all next time.